Great. I'd say uh, both both Christmas sharing and you know what Shirley mentioned too relates to Advent, which we don't normally think about. Advent, in fact, uh, you'll see this in the past. Our colors for our church have been blue, like we've had blue for uh, Advent color, which is actually uh, uh, like a 20th century uh, change. Previous, I don't know, maybe some of you guys who've grown up in a Lutheran church, yeah, it used to be purple, right? Well, when we purchased vestments, we didn't get blue. We just we got purple. So we're, we're be, we'll be wearing purple during Advent. And, and purple is normally a Lenten color, right? Everyone associates purple with Lenten. And what happens in Lent is that we it's a kind of penitential season where we kind of withhold or, you know, we fast. The same thing is in Advent, right? Because, um, in fact, Advent 1, which is a week, you know, is the 26th and 27th. The Advent Gospel reading is... Basically, Jesus telling us to, like, prepare for the end. Get ready. So, um, you know, which obviously is Jesus' birth, which is the beginning of the end and whatever. And the end of the beginning, to use a uh, T.S. Eliot quote. Or Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. All right, anyways. So, Advent is a penitential season. So, it's a a very common season to, to... to do without in order for somebody else to do with. So as we think about Christmas sharing and the Page Convalescent Center and any other organizations, it's a, uh, it's a very healthy practice to, to, to not have something in order for somebody to have. Uh, in fact, that goes well with St. Elizabeth of Hungary. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read it, but she is pretty interesting in terms of this practice here, because um, she's a Cinderella of, thor- of, of sorts. Uh, actually, I, I put the quote on top of there. Is, um, Dear brothers and sisters, in St. Elizabeth we see how faith and friendship with Christ create a sense of justice, of equality of all, of the rights of others, and how they create love, love, charity. From this charity is born hope, too. The certainty that we are loved by Christ and that the love of Christ awaits us, thereby rendering us capable of imitating Christ and seeing Christ in others. That little paragraph there is uh, filled with a lot of stuff. Um, but uh, faith and friendship with Christ is very interesting. I pulled this quote from page 51. Elizabeth diligently, and that's, that's a very important word, diligently, practice works of mercy. Kind of lists the whole, whole list of things there, you know, what she does. But the one thing, though, that really caught my eyes, coming down from her castle, it's a great description. Um, and so let's turn to John chapter 1. Because I'm pretty sure that Pope Benedict wrote that on purpose in that way. There's a a long history of the early church fathers talking about God and the economy, love and money. Not the love of money, but how love really transforms how we use wealth. In fact, uh, John Chrysostom, who is a very famous pastor, he was a pastor in Constantinople, which would have been like the Washington, D.C. of of his time. And then Antioch, which would have been, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good analogy for U.S. cities, but they were both very wealthy cities. Um. And so his, his congregation was filled with a lot of wealthy people. But John Christosom, which means the golden mouth, so he was a great preacher. But he preached, uh, like for instance, uh, we have 90 sermons of his sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. Out of the 90, he preached two-thirds on, on money, which is fascinating. I mean... Uh, you know, we often associate churches like a money grabber. But wealth has always been a thorn in the church's side. Um, and St. Elizabeth of Hungary actually 
really challenges us to see what wealth means. And the word wealth, too, for John Chrysostom meant money with a purpose. It just wasn't an abstract notion, like you have a lot of money. If you had a lot of money, that usually meant you, that was an idol. But if you had wealth, that meant you were using your money for something, for a, you know, a godly purpose. All right, so John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a, you know, this is a very well-known passage where the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, you know, you go down, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word that, begun, that began in the presence of God, or a heavenly existence, came down from heaven and was incarnate. You know, that, that's the Nicene Creed. But for John chapter 1, it, it dwelt among us, and then we have seen his glory. So that would have been, that's very interesting because we have Jesus in, as a person, and then that's the glory of God. So um, it's not a heavenly reality, although the heavenly reality manifests itself here on earth in a very unusual way. Not in a, we kind of talked about that this last week, right? When God speaks from heaven, we don't quite always understand what that means. It sounds like thunder or we're really scared and we ask somebody else to speak to us. So in this section, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, that's a paradigm. Our Lord's, our Lord Jesus' movement from heaven to earth and back is really a primary image to help us with St. Elizabeth's life. Because as the quote says, she came down from her castle. What did she do? And then, you know, she didn't actually stay down there. She always went back. You know, she went to bed in her castle. So it's a very interesting movement back and forth. And Jesus, as the Son of God, divine, his heavenly home, he left his heavenly home to come down to earth. And what does he do down on earth? Well, he, he shows his love. But it shows his love in a very specific way that is also a template for our lives. And that would, that would be John chapter 15. So let's, let's kind of mosey on over to John chapter 15. There's some Bibles in the back if, we haven't, if, if you didn't bring one. This, is also, uh, this Bible verse is also quoted in uh, the Jungle Book. John chapter 15, uh, it's really the first 17 verses, but... We're not going to read all those. We're just going to read verse uh, 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the question is, well, how have you loved us? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So obviously, within the context of the gospel, that's the crucifixion. That's where Jesus lays down his life for his friends. So if... The incarnation of John chapter 1, verse 14, is very helpful for us to understand St. Elizabeth. Um, we're, we're applying Jesus' kind of life onto St. Elizabeth, and then we're kind of seeing how that all fits. And she, you know, she comes down from her castle. She visits, visits uh, the homes of the poor. She uh, brings bread, meat, flour, other food. She distributed the food personally, attentively. Check the clothing and mattresses of the poor, which I think is kind of fun. So our Lord comes from heaven, makes his home with us, but in a very specific way, he dies. He, he, he gives up of himself in order for others to live. And St. Elizabeth, if we read the chapter, we really realize how far she goes in giving up herself for others. She, uh, you know, she's very willing to renounce even her, her wealth, which is not the only way to handle your wealth, okay? But as our Lord leaves his heavenly home and makes his dwelling place with the world, he even goes further and makes his dwelling place within you. That's uh, 15 verse 4, but also John fourteen twenty three. And there's a whole bunch of verses about that. And this movement takes residence in you. So this action, this way that Christ is, takes up residence in you. So as Jesus comes from heaven, uh, comes down from heaven, lives on earth, and then goes back to heaven, 
that movement then comes into you as a child born of God, not born of the flesh. Uh, and then that movement takes up residence in you and then leads you back into the heavenly home. So this movement takes residence in you and thus moves you along toward your neighbor. So for St. Elizabeth, that meant showing her fellow nobility. That's one. That's one level. That wealth wasn't a gift to keep to themselves, but primarily a gift to share with the poor. So not only did she become an example for the nobility, but she also, on the second level, was an image of Christ to the poor themselves. Now, one of the things, too, though, is that uh, I didn't put it up here on the Internet, but if you guys want to go home and Google the global rich list, it's a great little calculator. Uh, The global rich list, you know, because we always think of Forbes, right? The Forbes uh, uh, top 100 most wealthy people. We see Bill Gates and things like that. The global rich list is... It takes it, ta- it says everybody in the entire world, and they take information from uh, like uh, the United Nations information. It's like uh, some other organization I can't remember off the top of my head. And if you put your let's say you put your income in there, it'll tell you what percentage you are, and it'll actually give you a number, like your whatever your five billion three hundred and. 55,364,000 richest person in the world. Well, one of the great things about this is that um, I, I, I put in my own salary, and I, was, I thought well, this will be interesting to find out. Uh, but then, let's, I, then I said, okay, well, I'm going to put in some other numbers. And I put in my salary when I first started after college. And then I, I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to go and put in the poverty rate level. So a single person in the United States at the, the poverty line is about $16,000 a year. So I put in 16000 You guys want to take a wild stab at what the actual percentage is concerning the, the global, like where they would be on the global rich list? Well, yeah, so let's put it like uh, top 10%, top 50, you know. Yeah, let's put it the other way. You... Uh, Oh yeah, there. The, you actually, if you're six, if you have sixteen thousand, you are about eleven uh, percent. I put my, my uh, I, I put my salary in here at church, and I was part of the one percent. So this is where we have a little problem in terms of as we as we read Saint Elizabeth of Hungary, and we say, oh, she's a princess. You know, you know, we kind of we we can't relate to this, right? We can't really. She, yeah, she can afford to give all this, right? <laughs> Which would be interesting. Even even that paradigm would be interesting for us. Would we be willing to sell everything besides our house? Um. So, uh, so we actually are kind of like Saint Elizabeth. Yeah, but her, her spiritual director said said no. And this is very important because... Exactly. There's basically three things that the rich people do in the Gospels. One is sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. That's one way. That's a legitimate way. The other one is actually to, to, to leave it. Actually, not manage it. Just leave it. Walk away from it completely. Because... St. Matthew, what did he do when Jesus said, follow me? He stood up and walked away. Why? Because, well, his money was completely dirty. I mean, there was no way of rescuing that. That's his particular, that's not necessarily all tax collectors. But he left it. There's no no, uh, mention of him actually, you know, giving back to the poor. Now, we have another way, and that's Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. And then what did he do? He made restitution, right? And then the last one is, as Joanne said, is being stewards. And uh, now in St. Elizabeth's life, 
all four of those actually were kind of part of how she handled her wealth. The last thing, though, was is that um, as her her uh, spiritual director, uh, Friar Roger, said, "No, don't do this because you should hang on to your wealth because you can do a lot of great things for it." And I actually think that's probably most practical for all of us here. I, th- I think it's just the, for us. Now, you guys know what the Lord is saying to you, and if the Lord says something different, fantastic. But it will be, probably be along those four lines. But I think most of us are to not actually sell everything. But to uh, well, but before we get to that point, though, let's we have questions to ponder on that first page. In what ways are we, like Saint Elizabeth, insulated from people with physical or material needs? We live out, yeah. So we got a a, a location insulation, absolutely. All right, now we got. So how many people knew that before this morning? Well, right, yeah, so within our community, that which we can tackle this discussion in a variety of ways. We can talk about it individually, kind of more like uh, globally or nationally, or even like community-wise in terms of St. John. So, Carol, what were you going to say? Uh, and then, in fact, I think I actually asked a question just like that. Holy smokes. That guy's a smart person. All right. Nancy, what were you going to say? Right. Oh yeah, right. Now, but that, that, yeah, exactly. But, but when we talk about our wealth and what, even, even though, so yeah, that's exactly right. So you got to think uh, complex. You got to be complex thinkers. Yeah. Thanks, Nan. All right. So that's exactly right. I think those are the two things. So we have a location issue. Even, I mean, it, yeah, right. So if we're living in the suburbs, it just if we go through our normal life, it's very easy to not really participate. The other aspect would be knowledge. Meaning that, you know, if we really want to know, we can know, and and so we have a, a lo- location locatedness problem and a knowledge problem. Like for instance, not even within our own community, but let's let's think globally. We live in the United States, which means we're not like we don't walk out the door and see children who are suffering from lack of water. In fact, that was. Dollar, Joanne. I, I, I you, ever, you ever do this every now and then? You like find a money like an old, like a coat. It's, I had one of those moments today, and I, I, I and uh, I thought, you know what? This is interesting because um, a lot of these subjects that we're we're discussing today, we're actually working with like the high school Bible study on Sunday. Um, so we're on Sunday morning. We're kind of cultivating ways that the children can engage these kind of issues. Um, and one dollar one dollar can actually legitimately like give clean water to somebody like in Liberia. Now the reality is as though that you can't just donate one do- dollar. I mean it so you have to spend money to dil- dig a, a, a well. but it kind of works out to be a dollar for somebody to have clean water. You know, and I, I, it's, if you really, like, research clean water, holy smokes, a lot of people don't have clean water. Uh, most people don't. I mean, I shouldn't say most. Uh, a large percentage of people actually don't have clean water. We're not even talking about money. We're just talking, so that's where, like, the $16,000 in the United States goes, that's really great because you still can go and get some clean water. So, yeah, again, think complexly, because one of the things is for today not to actually cause any guilt, but actually say, holy smokes, I can actually do a lot of, do a lot of great stuff with, without actually impacting our lifestyle. I'm not even, I'm not like, so I'm not, let's again, I'm not advocating like selling all your possessions and radically living simple. All I'm asking is to maybe think in a a way that you can be a, a gospel giver rather than, um, you know, kind of turned in on yourself. So, so oh, yeah, so what? Way, any other ways that we have been insulated from our people? We've kind of talked about knowledge, slash ignorance, will, and then location. Jan. Right. This, yes, you're absolutely right. Statistics say that, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Right, materialism. 
Sure. And one would have to ask, is that a bad thing? No. Yeah. So, sure. Yeah, right. Repo man. Right. Take it away. Yep. Yeah. Well, and this is where we, I think we really have to think about things differently because uh, you, you mentioned your children and how values have been passed on to generations. And we kind of have done it in a way that we haven't really thought about it, critically speaking. And with the advent of the Internet and the amount of information that can be gained and understood, we're really in a kind of a unique position to know more about our neighbor than we have in the past. Um, and so what we have to do, especially as, as uh, like parents and grandparents, um, we have to ask ourselves, what, what are we doing with our children? And uh, is it in fact having the intended consequences? Like, are, you know, are we living in a way that actually will, uh, as we raise our children, have we thought about what this, you know, what are the consequences? You know, are we, because um, materialism amongst, you know, teenagers and young people is, is yeah, it's just the way it is. Now, the great thing, though, is, is that it's also the young people who are asking a lot of questions. They're like, this is pointless. Uh, Oscar Mayer, right? We all know what Oscar Mayer is. He's a, uh, you know, obviously they, they had made a lot of money, old money. But there is actually an Oscar Mayer heir who actually, he made the news because he gave up everything he had. He, uh, which, he's a young, he was a young man when he did it. And he said to his parents, you know, I don't think, I don't. Um, and he tells this story. It's a very interesting story because his dad comes to him, and his dad actually was sort of understanding. Like, he asked, he's like, I thought about this. Are you sure you want to do this? Do you know what this means? And the basic answer from his son was, I will be like 98% of my friends. And so that was interesting. Like, he, he didn't actually see, like, he, he didn't think he was really losing anything because he would just be like everybody else. So, um, you know, as, as, we, as we lead our children and as we lead kind of, uh, you know, whether it be our spiritual children or our actual, you know, blood children, flesh and blood children, we, we have to ask this question about how, as they grow up, you know, are, are we, what are the values are, are we giving them? And um, we could be in a spot where maybe we, we, we can't do much about it. But the great thing is, though, is if you look at the biblical narrative, Israel is a great example for us. They have great wealth, and then it all comes crashing down, and, you know, they're all up and down. It's like a roller coaster. One of the great things, too, about the Old Testament is, uh, in fact, I think I might mention this later in there, but um, gleaning, you guys know what that is, right, in the Old Testament? Ruth is a very, yes, exactly. It's, just, it's a part of the messianic story. Uh, provisions for aliens or foreigners, and then the year of Jubilee, which uh, that's a very radical thing in the Old Testament, but the reality is that Israel never really lives up to it. It's a bummer. Because they, they, they are freed from Egypt, right? What kind of economic reality did they have in Egypt? No, they were slaves. So you would think, hey, I was poor. I'm going to go to the promised land. What kind of life am I going to live? Oh, hey, I, I'm, I'm in the promised land. I can live the a promised land dream and do whatever, you know, get wealth and, you know, make money. No. Exodus and Leviticus, your favorite books, especially Leviticus, right? Um where they actually talk about, they actually answer a very simple question, uh, when is enough enough? And they don't ask that question after they have stuff. They ask it before they have it, which is a great thing, because as they enter into the promised land, God says, this is how we are. Your, your fields, again, of course, this is an agricultural, agricultural, all right. Hey, all right, that's better. So God says to, to Israel, hey, listen, you guys know what it's like to be a, a foreigner? You know, you know what it's like to be a slave? Um, you know, we're not going to treat people that way anymore. 
And this is how you're not going to do that. You're going to you take your field, and you're going to not plow up and reap the harvest all the way up to the end. So in a sense, God's saying, leave money on the table. Because that agriculture, that's money for them. So he says, you're just going to do without that part. Um, and then also, you know, if you're harvesting and you drop something on the ground, leave it. It's like going to the apple orchard. You have you guys go to the apple orchard, right? And you got all these apples on the floor, and they're like, those look pretty good. But you never want to pick them up quite yet because you don't know what will people think of you. Right. Um, but those are probably good, right? So uh, especially if you go with children, you know, they, they, they pick one and they drop, but they just like pulling on the branches and things like that. So if the same thing was is in gleaning, you, uh, you just leave stuff on the ground. So that people who have without, they just come and they, they reap. They reap where they did not sow. So God said to him, this is enough. More than that goes to other people. Which is a, which is a fascinating way of how we look at our lives. Because oftentimes when we talk about money and economics in the church, we always talk about it afterwards, right? Net, gross, you know, that whole, that whole discussion. Um, but the discussion is already begun at the wrong spot when you talk that way. You actually need to be talking about that before you even have money. So, you know, discussion with children and young people and say, hey, when you, when you have a job, this is how you're going to live. Um, now, the, the provisions for aliens is the same way. One of the great things is when you have an alien in your midst, not alien, foreigner, somebody who's not part of the community, we're not talking about space aliens. Uh, when they come in your midst, you, you pretend that they're a part of the family. So you give them a coat, you give them their food, because you knew what it was like to be a foreigner in a, in a, in a different land. What's great, though, about these two, two sections in Leviticus 19, especially, the end of the sentence always says, um, and I'm the Lord your God. The Lord is your God. So do this. The Lord is your God. Because God is reminding them, this is who I am. So this is how I am. This is who you are. Just like when the incarnation, this is how Jesus is. Leaves heaven, comes to earth, goes back to heaven. This is how you are to be too. And the last thing is the year of Jubilee, which is a really interesting read. Leviticus 20-something, but it's like 55 verses. It's a long section. It's amazing. It would have been amazing to actually see that actually happen. Because um, after 50 years, or 49 years, the 50th year, nobody works. You, you know, if you're in debt, you get your debt forgiven. You, um, if you had to sell land in order to make money, then you can actually go back to that person that you sold the land to and actually say, you can actually say, I'll buy that land back for the price I paid for it, not for what he paid for it. So it's a very fascinating reality. Um, but the whole premise is this, is that because this is how God is, this is how the people will be. Um, anyways, that, that's actually, we're a little ahead of ourselves. But yeah, Lindsay. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, what do you do? I mean, like, yeah, right, because uh, I, I think there, there's actually two steps before you get to the, the practical step. Um, the practical step is habit. Well, but the problem is, is that your first few times when you do it, you start thinking about yourself in a variety of ways. You actually might say to yourself, did I do enough? Um, or, hey, I did pretty, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty awesome. Either way, that's the wrong question, because... Um, yeah, it's, it's the, it, I mean, it's the wrong statement because the reality is, is that it goes through the first two steps. The first step is knowing, knowing these, knowing some, knowing this person, because if you live in relationship to this person, you're going to know them and you're going to share with them. So like if I have somebody who comes into my midst who simply needs a, a like a ham sandwich, I could, I could probably help. I can do that. But if I have someone who comes into my situation who needs 
uh, a cast on their arm, or they have some kind of medical issue, or uh, a, like a mental issue, I can't, I, can't, I can't actually help them. I can be a facilitator, though. But that's all, again, that goes back to knowledge. So you, you need to know who you're helping and what exactly is, is happening in the situation. And then you have to evaluate yourself in terms of like what you can actually do and what you can't do. Because what you can't do doesn't mean you're failing. Which goes to that, that kind of that question, did I do enough? Because you can only do what you can do. You can't do more than you can do because that's outside, that's beyond the horizon of your knowledge. So then, then you approach the situation without guilt and shame, but with confidence and hope because you know this is what I can do. And what I can't do uh, because I've actually been diligent, like St. Elizabeth, and intentional, I can say to this person, this is what I can do for you. What I can't do, for, or like, you know, if somebody says, you know, I need this, and you say, well, I can't actually help you, you don't feel guilt and shame about it, but you can say, here are the avenues in which you can get help for this. Um, but that, so you've already removed the self-righteousness out of it because you've actually just laid claim to what God has given you to do. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost like Jesus. Where, you know what, Jesus, yeah, right, so so again, that I'm, I'm kind of being facetious. You, yeah, actually doing this will, will actually cause quite a problem, I think. It will run against the grain in a variety of ways. There's another story, and this is actually, I think, being played out right now. Um, you know, the Johnson & Johnson Company, right? Yeah, they actually, one of the heirs of the Johnson Johnson Company, his name's Jamie Johnson, he actually made these movies, which aren't really that good. They're documentary movies about the rich. Um, his first one was Born Rich, and his second one is The 1%. Uh, what I think is interesting in those two documentaries is the fact that he actually asks, because he's, he's, he's a billionaire, so he has access to billionaires. So he asks, he asks people about their money. And what, what do you think is the, the normal response? Defensive. And just simply asking questions has caused him to be ostracized. Very fascinating. And uh, it, it, what's, what's really, I think another interesting aspect of his documentary is his own father. Because his father, when he was in college, made a movie. He, um, again, because of his position in life, he had access to, to wealth and resources and, and authority, power. And he did some work against apartheid, you know, way back when in the 60s. And he, he actually, as a college or recent college graduate, made a movie about apartheid. Now, when, they, when stockholders and when people heard about this Johnson & Johnson era, you know, kind of raising a ruckus about the disenfranchised, people came to him and said, you better stop this because you're going to ruin our position. You're, you, uh, you can't do this. You're incapable of ruling. So his father, unfortunately, faced a crisis. Either you're going to tell them this is what needs to be done or you're going to kind of walk the party line. Now, St. Elizabeth obviously said, okay, this is who I am, and this is what I need to do. So she goes away. This, this, this Johnson & Johnson guy, though, just didn't do that. And I, it's very interesting on the camera how you can, it's, it's uh, tangible, visceral, his guilt and shame over what he had done. But he's a billionaire now. And he does a lot of things to insulate himself from those questions until his son comes and says, there, well, you know, why couldn't we, like, redistribute some of this money or can we, like, do without? And um, his dad doesn't, his dad at one point just says, I can't talk about this anymore. And you as a viewer are like, that, that was out of nowhere. He just says, I'm done. 
So um, these kind of, these kind of decisions, I think I, I, I'm actually not advocating that right now. But I mean, um, that's something I think that's important for us to ask ourselves. Again, I'm just I'm, I just am advocating for a dollar a day kind of thing. I mean, you know, because uh, that actually can do something. But um, when you really get to these like uh, very profound way of living, people rebel against that. Oh no, you're faithful. Yeah, sorry, you're faithful to what Jesus tells you. That's why I, I kind of talked about those four things: how to handle your wealth. Um, God is calling you in that way. And when I say your wealth, if anybody makes more than $16,000 here, you're part of the top 10% of the world, so you're, you're kind of wealthy. Um, that's another thing, too, is we always have a tendency to compare uh, with those people above us rather than below us, right? So that might be a fundamental difference in our life. So then we've got to remain faithful to these four things. And if we are faithful to these four things, then, yeah, most likely people are going to Say, um, you're unfit. You you don't you don't belong with this wealth, or they might say, you know, you've changed. What's wrong with you? You know, why aren't you participating in this kind of you know life? And and that might actually fracture relationships. Yeah. But the thing is, though, is that what's interesting is uh, Saint Elizabeth, in her her life definitely radically affected other people, and I think in a positive way. It's just like Jesus. I mean, G- Jesus. Uh, I always, with the confirmation kids, I say, you know, you know, who 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 did the Ten Commandments perfectly? Well, Jesus, right? And if you're good, then right, people are gonna like you. Uh, yeah, your teacher's gonna say, great job. Yeah. Parents are going to say, you're, you know, you're awesome kid. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, then I inevitably ask, where did, where did, you know, where did that get Jesus? Well, it got him crucified. Ah, maybe I don't want to do this. You know, it's, it's, so it's, it's counting the costs. And, and uh, anyways, I, right. That is, that is the cross. That is, that is the struggle we, we bear. Well, I, I think I think the simple my the, the thing is is that again, yeah. How do you love those people too? Is that goes with uh, the Brudger Rogers advice? It's it's analogous to that where she says, "I want to do this." He's like, "No." Um, inevitably, there might be some relations, but again, I, I'm just advocating for like this. I hopefully, if someone breaks relationship with you over some of these small steps that you can do. Then you got to ask yourself, was this really worth it in the first place? Yeah. Rachel? Yes. Absolutely. Now, yeah, the great struggle, uh, maybe that's what you're, okay, I get it now. Because, like, when you do that, you set this great example, and you do it uh, selflessly and with love. That person, though, might actually say, you know, oh, look at that person. They're so self-righteous. Well, you know what? That's their way of coping with their son. You just kind of have to forget about it. But, um, yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, John Christosom, this dude, uh, he, he, when he preaches these pretty, pretty interesting uh, stories, or these uh, sermons, uh, he always starts off, I'm saying this because I love you. So, you know, it's like a parent, right? Like when you say, I'm doing this because I love you. I know you don't like it, but this is good. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's exactly right, Rachel. In fact, without that, it's pointless to even do these things. Holly. We should, yes, right. I bet you we all have experiences like that in our life. Whether we want to like accept them as a good thing or a bad thing, we do. Uh, Martin Luther's small catechism, we should fear and love God. Um, but both of those are good. Goodness is, is good. So, uh, Carol, who's going to say something here? Barbara. Oh, yeah, right. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, missionaries or, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, people. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. You know, especially in Wheaton, especially in America too. We we always think if we follow God or trust in God, like our national motto says, trust. You know, God we trust. Things are going to go well. Well, as Christians, if we are, you know, when we are faithful, things do go well. But not in the way that kind of our kind of pop culture religiosity says. What is a blessing? So, so the Beatitudes are very helpful because blessed are you <laughs> when you're persecuted. We, we usually want to take that out. We just want to say, blessed are you who receive the kingdom of God or heaven. But that's not what Jesus says. So it's interesting how we remember wrongly. Karin. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, so you were the the alien in a sense. Yeah, that's right. And uh how how you See, this is good though because I think yeah, so now one of the interesting things is about the Bible is that the word of God will always um when we reflect, I should say, reevaluate our past in a way that actually then incorporates it into the story of God. So, you know, um, some, the way a lot of people will talk about it is, I didn't know it at the time, but God's hand was in the midst of that situation or, or, or whatever. Um, something like that. So what, uh, when, we, when we kind of reflect upon our experiences with different topics or subjects, what Scripture brings up, when we really seriously meditate and let God's word kind of saturate our hearts and minds and then, you know, let it do its work, we'll we'll start to remember these things like Holly and Karen uh, have talked about. And we will remember then rightly in the way that God wants to use that for for good, for living well. Um so what at first might be a very intimidating subject, especially when we start asking the que- or answering the question, when is enough enough? You know, like, when, it, when do we have enough house? When do we have, an, you know, an, uh, how many cars is enough? How many pairs of shoes is enough? How many, you know, uh, I don't know, money is enough? How much, you know? And uh, at first that's very hard. And sometimes we feel a little regretful or guilt about things. Um, you know, but the reality is, is then that goes back to our conversation from several weeks ago. How, how are those memories going to be transformed into something that provides an opportunity for us to be faithful? Um, I, I think that's, uh, something very important for us as Christians to really spend time reflecting. I don't know if we do it enough. Hopefully we do. Spending time in silence and and really just looking back over our life, remembering the times that God's blessed us, maybe remembering the times when we were going against what God was directing us towards. And then in that moment, rejoicing the opportunity that now you can do something different and and live differently. So, yeah, surely. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Go to seminary. That would be helpful. (laughs) Yes, we. Uh, when you're out of work for for a long time and you live off of uh, people, food banks, and the in-laws and parents. Yes, right. Uh, you really realize that hey, life is still pretty good. You know, the free days at museums are really amazing. I mean, again, that goes back to the sixteen thousand dollars. You know, still here in the United States, yeah, can we, um, you know, live in, in, in certain places on $16,000 a year? No. But we still have, we still have a lot of stuff. We still have a lot of neat, neat things. So, well, anyways, that's, okay, beside the point. I, I, one of the things, too, I wanted to, oh, yeah, is, um, Relationships, knowing and sharing. Uh, when we live in relationship with somebody, 
In order to love them, we must know them. I really, I really would kind of argue against that you can love someone without knowing them. That, yeah, you, the, the statement is you can't love someone without knowing them. And what that all means is, well, first of all, you know, the King James Version, you know, in the Old Testament, when someone knew somebody, right? They did the love act. Um, that's actually just very important for us to kind of consider. Um, now, you could do an action that's loving. So if some stranger comes up to the street, and I don't know who they are. You know, I could, I could do something. I mean, I could show love to them. But even in that moment of, of action for love, I think at a very fundamental reality is I'm actually knowing them in a way that's, that's very unique, different. You see this oftentimes when um, someone's saved, like, you know, from a flood or a burning house. And what happens? The one who's saved and the one who saves, they'll always have this, this relationship for the rest of their life. That's because I think on a very profound level, they actually know each other. So in order to actually love people that are poor or different from us, we have to enter into a relationship of knowing them. Um, so that means actually being active and int- intentional and diligent about knowing people around you in all facets. Uh, whether it's like Rachel saying, you know, leading people in, in works of love. So like actually being engaged with, let's say, people like us or people who are w- wealthier than us. Wealthier, right? That's the word. Wealthier than us, or whether it's being engaged with people who are, are, are poorer than us. We just have to know people. We have to spend time to listen to people. We have to spend time getting to, to really experience their lives. Which is very hard, right? Listening is hard. We're all women here. We all know what that's like with your husbands and fathers and Brothers, men have that issue. Uh, But once you actually know someone, then you're at a point where you can actually do something about it, and that goes to sharing. Carol. Thomas Train clothes, pajamas, PJs. Unclean, unclean. That would be a good biblical word. Yep. Yep. Uh, last week, I showed a little video clip from a movie called Lord, Save Us From Your Followers. And uh, there's this great thing that they do in Portland, Oregon, where churches come together every Friday night, and they, they do things for the homeless. One of the interesting things is as they interview people who participate in this, they actually interview somebody who was a former homeless person. And what she said was, the food and the clothing's fantastic, but what's most important are the hugs because you already feel like you are unclean, unapproachable. And when someone comes and engages them as a human being, it changes their life. Now, what's interesting is then they interview other people who have not been homeless and they say, just like Carol said, I've actually received from these people when I'm trying to give to these people. And going back to uh, John Chrysostom, by the way, if you want to read any, any like pastor who does some really awesome radical things, he's the guy to do it. Because he actually brings this point up and says, those who are wealthy need the poor because the poor have something they don't, but they actually need. And so he creates this very giving and receipt this sharing relationship that um, changes people's lives. I mean, it radically changes people's lives, both the poor and the wealthy. And uh, uh, so, yeah, you should participate in Christmas sharing. <laughs> That's right. You should. Um, you get to. You, know, you, don't, you don't got to. And I, I do ask that question on the back page there. 
So as you think about, maybe you spend a little time afterwards, you know, looking at these all these questions. Have you ever felt like you received from more from the poor than you gave? Describe your experience. Uh, there's a bunch of other questions like this, but um, I'm just going to finish with this thought. What's very helpful, though, for the biblical biblical understanding of giving is we don't give in order to receive. It's very important because that's what makes Christianity different from like Buddhism or or Hinduism. Went to the Hindu Mandir a few years ago with college kids, and the guy was the guy who showed us around. He was very nice. They were very welcoming, hospitable. And then they talked a little bit about their beliefs, and they said, "Your happiness is in the happiness of others." Well, that is wrong because you don't engage someone in order to make you happy. Because what happens is, is that person now becomes a means in which to satisfy yourself. And we call that using people. Which, you know, in terms of relationships, usually is a, is a downer. We don't want to do that. We don't use other people for our own happiness. Uh, you, you, you love people because they need to be loved. So you actually aren't expecting anything in return. And they could actually tell you terrible things. They could call you ter- terrible names for doing what you're doing. Um, but that doesn't stop you from doing them. So, but the, the wonderful, great thing about this is that love is overflowing. It is abundant. And when it splashes out of the cup and it splashes on you, that's pretty good. That feels good. Sometimes it doesn't splash on you, but that means you still. It's called unconditional love. So, yeah, just, you know, uh, but the great thing about Christmas sharing is everyone's thankful. So that's that's a nice thing to participate in. Uh, Yeah, just think about Jesus on the cross and everybody who's mocking him and saying, you know, terrible things. So if you engage in a loving relationship and someone refuses your love, you're still hanging out with Jesus. So that's pretty cool. All right, I don't, I don't know. You could look at a lot of this other fun stuff around here. I think it's understandable. But I think it's very important for us to actually take a look at it. I would love to spend more time on St. Elizabeth, but we're, we won't. So we'll, we'll move on to the next chapter. Next Friday is, uh, you know, we're not going to be here. So don't come back on Friday. <laughs> But come back the following week, which I believe is December 3rd? 2nd. You can. All right. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll go on with our day.